Why are you here today? There's a lot of places that you could be, a lot of things that you could be doing. You could be at brunch right now, sipping on a mimosa. You could be on your way to the beach to worship God and nature. You could be sleeping in, doing the whole resting on the seventh day thing. You could even stream an Andy Stanley sermon later and listen to a little Hillsong if you had any residual guilt about skipping church. You could be doing something altruistic as well. You could be giving blood or serving at a soup kitchen, visiting the elderly in a nursing home, picking up empty beer cans at a nature preserve. But you're not. You're not doing any of those things. You're here at church. And for some reason, the folks in charge decided it would be a good idea if the piano player preached a sermon. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Andy. I'm married to Ashley. We have four children, Janie, Finn, Archer, and Wells. I'm the worship pastor here at the church, and I've been, um, I've been working at Summit for 14 years. And in all of those years, um, I've never had any desire nor inclination to preach a sermon. <laughs> that has not changed. <laughs> I'm very happy in my role playing the piano and singing a few songs. So if you hate this sermon, it's totally fine. Really, it is. Don't tell me, but by all means, tell everyone else that you can find so I never have to do this again. (laughs) If you like it, okay, come tell me, but just let's keep it between us, all right? Our little secret. We are, as Gary said, in a series about spiritual practices called Rhythm. And this is a sermon about singing and worship, and we're going to get right into it. So we're going to look at uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. It's not all in your bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Just listen along. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. 
I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I feel like there are so many sermons in this story. There are sermons about salvation, repentance, racial reconciliation, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. But this is a sermon about worship, and more importantly, about what it means to become, to be a worshiper. The story begins with Jesus passing through Samaria, which is no small thing because Jews hated Samaritans. To get where they were going, the normal thing to do if you were Jewish would have been to significantly extend your trip, go all the way around Samaria. But for whatever reason, Jesus and those who are traveling with him decide to take the direct route. They stop at a well. The disciples go into town to get some food. This woman approaches the well to draw water, and Jesus asks her for some. The fact that Jesus asks her for water not only breaks cultural Barriers, but gender barriers as well in that day. She is taken aback that Jesus, he, this Jewish man, is speaking to her, a Samaritan woman. Her surprise becomes what some commentators think is mild annoyance when he begins to talk nonsense about he, how he will offer her water when he clearly doesn't have anything to get it with. Plus, he said living water which taken literally would have called to her mind a stream or a spring or a river, neither of which is anywhere nearby. So she tauntingly asks him if he's greater than her ancestor Jacob, who dug the well in the first place. And then Jesus begins to say things about never being thirsty again. And it's hard to tell for sure from the text what her tone is when she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Is she actually beginning to lean in? Like, please, I would really like some of this water. That would be great. Or is she being kind of playfully sarcastic and calling his bluff? Like, okay then, let's see this fancy magic water Ponce de Leon. <laughs> Fount of youth, anybody? Dad jokes are my love language, so get used to it. <laughs> but then the conversation takes a hard turn, and Jesus tells her to go get her husband. And now, 
Jesus has called her bluff. I think this is where worship begins for each and every one of us. When Jesus calls our bluff. Has he ever called yours? Have you ever come face to face with the reality that nothing this life has to offer is enough to fill the emptiness that's inside of you? Getting that date with her didn't fill it. Marrying him didn't fill it. Money didn't fill it. Having a kid didn't fill it. Success, popularity, booze, social work, even volunteering at church. Nothing fills it. But we keep going back to the well day after day, most of the time unaware that what we are most desperately craving is a divine interruption. She says to Jesus, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Notice that she says a prophet, not the prophet. I think one of the ways that we avoid becoming true worshipers is a partial acquiescence to the truth about who Jesus is. I think Jesus is great. Said some really wise things. Great teacher. I'm totally down with Jesus. It's like the old Urban Outfitters t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. Remember that one? The problem is, no one ever worships their homeboy. Unless you're hanging out with Kanye West, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Jesus is not your homeboy. He's God. The woman then proceeds to talk with Jesus about the proper physical place of worship. Jews say it's Jerusalem. Samaritans say on the mountain. What do you say? Commentators disagree about what she's doing here. She's either using a diversionary tactic to avoid talking further about her love life with a holy man, which is understandable, or she's actually wanting to move closer to Jesus but is recognizing that there is still a seemingly insurmountable barrier between her and him. Because the physical place of worship was actually a very big deal to both Jews and Samaritans. Either way, Jesus answers your question. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. A couple of things about this. First, when he says you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, it is you in the plural. He's speaking not just about her, but about all her people, all Samaritans. By extension, all people, all of us are invited to be worshipers. Second, he doesn't just ignore the question about who had the place right. He says salvation comes from the Jews and that the Jews worship what they know while the Samaritans worship what they do not know. So it's like the Jews were right, but only to a point because then he says a time is coming 
and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, which is just another way of saying that because of Jesus, worship is no longer bound to any particular place or methodology. This is why we often say around here, thank you for bringing the church into this place. Third, he says that the Father is seeking worshipers. And this to me has always stood out as a shimmering verse in this story. It's a verse that has shaped a lot of my thinking about what it means to worship over the last 20 years or so. And this is the verse we're going to spend the rest of our time in today. Because if the Father is seeking worship, then it seems like, uh, it feels like some kind of behavior or attitude that I have to get right. But if he's seeking worshipers, then he's seeking me. And he's seeking you. Just like he was seeking that Samaritan woman. And that has a very different feel to it. So how do we become worshipers? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Because I think that is why we're here today. And I think that is the potential outcome anytime two or more are gathered in Jesus' name. I'm not exactly the picture of fitness, despite two, maybe three years of declaring that this year, this one, will be the year of fitness. But about this time last year, no kidding, November of last year, I decided it's not too late to salvage the year of fitness. (laughs) So I had a pretty good run at getting up at 5 in the morning, going to the Y, and uh, doing my workout. I had a similar run like this in college, not at 5 in the morning. Um, But because of this, I, I more or less knew my way around the weight room, and so I would show up, go through my reps, And I would leave uh, about an hour later, and I would get home just in time to be home just before the kids were waking up. And I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that this was Ashley, my wife's favorite three months of our nine years of marriage. (laughs) I noticed something during this time, though, and I I mean it when I say that there is no judgment here. Um, I haven't darkened the door to a gym yet once this year. My body type has become kind of like if you took a toothpick and stuck an olive right in the middle of it. (laughs) Anybody remember the whole dad bod thing? I was really hoping that that was going to (laughs) stick. I have no room to talk. So, but there was this group of people and they were there sitting in the common area of the Y talking and drinking coffee when I showed up at five. And they were all there, still talking, drinking coffee when I left at 6. They all had workout clothes on, but I never saw one of them set foot on an elliptical machine or pick up a dumbbell or do anything else that would resemble uh, something that could be defined as a workout. I want to submit to you that showing up to a worship service is a lot like showing up to the gym. Everyone here got up got dressed, drove however many miles, and again, here we are. So now what? Well, hopefully we work out, spiritually speaking. Every part of your experience at church affords you the opportunity to either merely observe or to engage. 
and to become a bit more of who God intended you to be when he thought you up. Listen to this quote from James K.A. Smith that my friend Pete sent me a couple of weeks ago. Worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. All of us tend to approach church as a consumer. And this is perfectly natural, I think, given the societal context we're a part of. It's hard to escape that mindset. We come in asking questions like, was it easy to find parking? Did the girl at the door smile and greet me adequately? Was the room where I dropped off my kid on par with something I'd see at Disney? Was the music too loud, too showy, not nearly energetic enough? Been there, done that. Too many new songs to keep up. Did the guy I shook hands with during the greeting time look like someone I would actually want to hang out with? Why are there so many next steps I'm always being asked to take? <laughs> Volunteer, go to this class, become a partner, get baptized, join a group. Will they ask me for money? Are they going to say that same thing they say every week about no one asked you here for your money? <laughs> and the sermon, did I laugh? Did I cry? Did I get fed? Is this just going to be some kind of giant Old Testament history lesson? Why does it matter what it means in the Greek, Gary? Will he tell too many stories? Will he tell any stories? I really like those stories. What if you were to look at all of these questions, not through the lens of a consumer, but as someone who has shown up ready for a workout? The minute you show up in the parking lot, you have an opportunity to extend grace, to exhibit patience and kindness when that classroom you're dropping your kids off in looks a little bit chaotic, there's a cue to say thanks to that volunteer who's trying to teach all those kids they matter to God. <laughs> that girl handing out the bulletins didn't even look up at you. Say a little prayer for her. Who knows what kind of week she had, what news she may have just received. The music, near and dear to my heart. We do a lot of different styles of music here at Summit, and that is on purpose. It's largely driven by the particular ways that God has gifted up the, the volunteer musicians that serve here. Also, it's driven by a desire to represent diversity when it comes to celebrating the many facets of God's character. My good friend Isaac used to say that when you show up to church and the style of the band isn't your favorite, 
It's an opportunity to worship God on someone else's terms. I love that. So the guy that you shook hands with during the greeting time seemed a little bit off to you. Remember that God's kingdom is big. It's really big. All those next steps. This is where the real workout begins. Ways to serve, ways to learn, opportunities to do life with people who will call the best out of you. If you find yourself inclined, even in the slightest, to take one of those steps, by all means, do it. The offering. This isn't a sermon about why we should give. Gary gave that sermon a couple of weeks ago. But I I do want to take just a minute and talk about why we give during the worship service. Because it would be easier, more efficient, less awkward to guests, potentially, to just give online or use the boxes in the lobby. The reason why we take time during the service to give and even call it a continued act of worship, is there's perhaps no greater competitor for the affection of our hearts than money. So when we intentionally loosen our grip on it, and we recognize God as the source of every provision in our lives, and then we cultivate hearts that are generous, all of this amounts to a significant part of our spiritual workout. So I want to call the ushers forward. I'm just kidding. No second offering. Sure way to never have to preach again. So how about the sermon? Um, Let me just say, since I never do this, and I feel like I can say it, that I've, I don't think I've ever sat through a sermon that God didn't use in my life if... And this is a big if. If I started out by asking God to speak to me through it and then actually leaned in and listened. And it isn't always easy. It's not supposed to be easy. Any workout that does any good is hard. Eventually you feel great, but the process is never easy. If you never disagree with a point made in a sermon and leave having to wrestle through it, then you aren't listening close enough. And if you haven't been shaken to your core by something in the scriptures, then you haven't really engaged with them. When Jesus taught, he overturned perspectives and biases and prejudices and worldviews and wants even the tables of people who are trying to turn a prophet in the temple. He disrupts us. He calls our bluff, just like he did with that Samaritan woman. So if week after week you find yourself checking off spiritual boxes, like, yep, got that, Uh uh-huh, got that too, then you might want to up the incline on your treadmill because it's not making you any better. An intellectual assent to agreement with a proposition is a far cry from obedience. Since this is a sermon about singing, and since I'm the guy who spends every Sunday and most Thursdays asking people to sing, I want to talk a little bit more about that. 
Why do we sing? Have you ever thought about it? It's kind of weird. I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I can hardly think of another aspect of adult life that involves getting together with a bunch of people and just bursting into song together. Maybe a U2 concert. Or if Zach invites you to a musical. But that doesn't count either because that's just you watching other adults burst into song together. But if you think about it for a little longer, it's equally strange, maybe even stranger, that we don't sing more often because we were born singing. I brought empirical proof with me. Um, This is my son, Finn. He's my oldest. He's six now. This is when he was uh, almost three. I know, I know, he needs a little work. (laughs) The point is, singing, singing is innate. And in many cultures, it isn't relegated to the professionals once we all grow up. I've traveled to Africa, I've seen groups of adults sitting around a fire together deep into the evening singing. I was at SeaWorld once when a large group of tourists, all in matching T-shirts, began singing together while we were waiting for the Horizons Dolphin Show to begin. For better or for worse, though, we live in a culture where after a certain age, we have some level of apprehension around singing. I mean, I do. That That might seem like a weird thing to say since I was just sitting right here singing in front of you. But when I'm not up here and I have the opportunity to be out there with you singing in worship, I'm constantly thinking about not singing too loud because I don't want anyone to think I'm showing off. Not singing too quiet because I want people to know. I'm the worship guy. I want people to know we should sing loud in church. But in all of this, I'm way too preoccupied with myself to be worshiping. And that's a shame because I've missed out on an opportunity to be more who I was intended to be. Singing is a gift. It's a part of our creative impulse, part of what it means to be created in the image of a creator. We sing for the same reason that we color or paint or dance or build things. There's an emotional component to it as well, something that needs to be said that is beyond what can be said with words alone. The melody adds a dimension to the words, another dimension. Or we hear a tune without any words at all, and yet we feel something, even understand something, though we would struggle to put words to what it is we have felt and understood. But what? What does singing have to do with becoming who we are intended to be? Like what part of the spiritual workout is singing? 
Well, I think that particularly in our singing-inhibited culture, singing helps us to become more childlike, more vulnerable. And vulnerability is hard. It's hard in our relationships with each other, hard in our relationship with God. But it's important because Jesus says, unless we become like little children, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. When I was younger, I was a bright-eyed idealist. I wore my emotions on my sleeve, believe it or not. I was prone to dive into life wholeheartedly with little thought to the possibility of heartbreak or disappointment. But as I got older, life, as it tends to, taught me to guard my heart. Eventually, I learned this lesson a little too well and without meaning to, began to shut down my feelings so that by my late 20s, I had become overly careful, guarded, cynical. People sometimes characterize this as strength in me, but I will confess to you at its core, it was fear. Fear of failure, fear of getting hurt, fear of being abandoned by people that I loved and trusted, all that stuff. Somewhere in the midst of this period of time, I stopped crying. Not on purpose, but still, nothing made me cry. No sad tears, no happy tears, no habanero sauce tears or stub your toe tears. So I'd been going along like this for a while. And um, about a year or two into our marriage, my wife, Ashley, she keeps asking me to watch this YouTube video of this woman singing. It took her a long time to get me to watch it because most of the YouTube videos she'd convinced me to watch up to this point were of people falling off treadmills. <laughs> That's true. But finally, one night, we're sitting on the couch and she's like, okay, you have to watch this. And I know many of you have seen this before and it's a little bit long, but this is what we watched. Hi, what's your name, darling? My name is Susan Boyle. Okay, uh, Susan, uh, where are you from? I am from Blackburn near Bathgate, West Lothian. It's a big town. It's a sort of collection of, it's a collection of uh, villages. I to think there. And how old are you, Susan? I am 47. <laughs> and that's just one side of me. Okay, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? Well, I've never been given the chance before, but here's hoping it'll change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. Okay. Big song. <laughs> yeah? Yes. I'm 
no. Susan Pierce. Without a doubt, that was the biggest surprise I have had in three years on this show. When you stood there with that cheeky grin and said, I, I want to be like a lame page, everyone was laughing at you. No one is laughing now. That was stunning, an incredible performance. I'm reeling from shock about you two, but... I am so thrilled because I know that everybody was against you. I honestly think that we were all being very cynical and I think that's the biggest wake-up call ever. And I just want to say that it was a complete privilege listening to that. It was inspirational. <laughs> I knew the minute you walked out... <laughs> On that stage, <laughs> that we were going to hear something extraordinary, and I was right. Not <laughs> a lot of touch. Susan, you are a little tiger, aren't you? Oh, I don't know about that. You are. I don't know about that. Okay, moment of truth. Piers, yes or no? The biggest yes I have ever given anybody. <laughs> Amanda? Yes, definitely. 
Susan Boyle, you can go back to the village with your head held high. It's three S's. I know, it's so good. I got about 20 seconds into her singing that song, sitting there next to my wife on the couch, and I just lost it. I'm sure she was like, you okay, buddy? No more YouTube videos tonight. I know it seems crazy because it's just this silly reality TV show. But something broke inside me when I watched that video, and I don't think it was because a woman who didn't look the part surprised everyone by nailing the performance of a song. I think it was because, as I saw the looks on people's faces change from scorn to elation, I saw the cynicism and fear and inhibition that all of us in some way carry around inside of us, being just shattered, overshadowed by beauty. And that was something in that moment that I really needed to see. I experienced another moment kind of like this, uh, attending a friend's voice recital just after college. The recital was being held at a piano showroom in an old strip mall, and the owner had allowed the vocal instructor to use it after hours for her recital. And just before it was my friend's turn to sing, an older woman got up on stage to sing the song that she had prepared. And the song that she had been working on was the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Well, it was terrible. It was not Susan Boyle. Uh, it, the timbre of her voice was kind of croaky, and none of the notes were anywhere close to being on pitch. All of us sitting there were cringing. We were embarrassed for her, wanting the awkwardness of the moment to pass. People were making those little noises with their mouths that are the telltale signs of trying really hard not to laugh out loud. And it was like this for the entire first verse of the song. But then she began to sing the words to the second verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. And tears began to stream down her cheeks. And she lifted her eyes up like she was staring through the ceiling tiles straight into the heavens. My sin not in part, but the whole. The words were being forced out through the lump in her throat and the impulse to sob. And she raised her hands up and sang with such conviction words that transcended the broken, croaky, out-of-tune sound that carried them is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well. 
it is well with my soul. And I began to weep. And it wasn't because I felt guilty about the fact that I've been biting my cheek, trying not to laugh a moment before. I wept because it was beautiful. It was worship. I found out later, later that the reason, the reason she was taking voice lessons was so that the sound of her voice would better reflect what she felt in her heart when she was participating in worship at the church we both attended. I was blown away by that. It changed the way that I thought about what it means to worship, about what it means to lead worship. Because I'm not sure I've ever been more effectively led in worship than I was at that voice recital almost 20 years ago.